Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 10th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Keep an eye peeled for your census instructions this week. We all need to be counted. Today, returning to Ask a Leader is UCI lecturer and labor organizer Keith Danner to take up the mobilizing of UC system academic student employees to keep up with their living costs while they serve you guys, you students. Keith also has some uh, insight on how his peers have stakes in the breaking health and economic news. In the second half, UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts Director Jane Page and actors Ariel Kvashny and Crystal Kim are involved in a wonderful production of Lisa Loomer's Playing Out, a comic drama. Performances continue through March 15th. Tickets are available definitely at the box office. And oh yes, there's definitely a through line here with this show. The haves and the have-nots. A bit more not having than having. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest in this segment and returning to the show is Keith Danner, lecturer in composition at the University of California, Irvine. A longtime labor activist, Keith is interested in grassroots organizing of all kinds, from stopping climate change to winning a better contract for workers at the University of California. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts at Bucknell University and his Ph.D. at UC Riverside. He previously joined me about the case before then, the Supreme Court, this was in 2015, the Friedrichs versus the CTA, and we talked about the employment status of lecturers as a particular class of faculty. Today, we're taking up the organizing throughout the UC systems around the academic student employees' cost of living adjustments. Welcome back to Ask Leader Keith Danner. Thanks for having me, Claudia. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. So it's really a remarkable movement. It started at the University of Santa Cruz at about a month ago, or has this been something brewing in more uh, informal settings, but moved out when the, the wildcat strike began at UC Santa Cruz? I mean, certainly Santa Cruz is the place where it started. It was a couple of months ago. I think they initially they started with a grade strike, you know, refusing to submit grades. for the, That was in the, the fall quarter. Yeah, and, you know, what's interesting to me and I think has a lot of integrity with what they're doing is that they were extremely careful in terms of their non-submission of grades. So, for example, they have a whole flow chart where they advised striking workers to ask students whether or not non-submission of grades would affect their financial aid, to ask students whether or not non-submission of grades would affect students who might be deported because it would affect their visas. So I have a lot of respect for the way that they thought about their students in this, and it's clear to me on every level that they have in mind not just their own living conditions, but their students' working conditions as well. Okay. And that was at UC Santa Cruz. Were there other campuses that were simultaneously at that time moving this, this withholding of, of grades and other measures? 
I don't think that early on. You know, okay. I, I know that there was some um, dissatisfaction with the previous contract, which you know was ratified statewide um, and was in the context of a sort of desperate situation following the anti-labor ruling in the Janus case. But there, there was, even at that time, a significant minority of graduate students who were upset about the particular contract that they signed with the university, and I think we're seeing an expression of that discontent now. And I just want to backtrack a little bit. The Janus case was when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against the, the labor interests, and that was the, the ruling that followed what uh, several years prior was the Friedrichs versus the CATA. So that was in place. So um, let's talk about the, the importance of a cost of living adjustment for this class of contributors on the UC system campuses, the academic student employees. So the cost of living adjustments is looking at and acknowledging how much that the the rent for these this class of employees, these students, these lecturers and academic student employees, the extent to which their living costs are taken eaten up simply by the rent. So how what is it that the students are asking for in the adjustment and where are they parting company with what the UC system is willing to adjust for them? Well, I mean, first of all, just to clarify, I'm a lecturer, so I'm I'm not uh, actually a graduate student. These are graduate student workers. Yes, you're conferring with them. Yeah, in your labor organizing abilities. Well, I mean, I'm I stand personally in solidarity with them as a worker, but I just wanted to indicate that I'm in a separate category of worker. But obviously, the the thing that the Santa Cruz strikers and subsequently now other strikers at other campuses are saying is. This is, you know, in the backdrop of a housing crisis in California and across the country, they are caught in this problem, which is that their rent is eating up 40, 50, 60, 70, sometimes even 80 percent of their monthly income. And so they are in real trouble. They really struggle. It's forcing them to have uh, longer commutes. It forces them to, you know, maybe take extra side work. There's a variety Which of Which their contracts don't allow them to do. So they're, they're, they're having to do this surreptitiously. It would have to be under the table, yeah, because they're not uh, allowed to have additional employment. Which I'm not sure people understand that. Yeah. So that, yeah, that, that's been covered in the, some of the, the press available to us. The Los Angeles Times is doing a pretty decent job, I'm thinking. So what is the university offering? I think there was they were going to offer like a $2,000 annual increase, which is far short of a monthly increment to address the monthly rental obligations of these students, uh, student employees. Yeah, I mean, there was, I think, at Santa Cruz, the offer of $2,500. I'm not sure if it was one time or For on, over the year. It was not yeah, going to be yeah. re- a, a monthly a no, that's right. adjustment. So what are you finding? What kinds of advice have you been giving them? And also, to what extent you're talking about as an individual, you're offering solidarity. What is the UCI faculty, how are they weighing in supporting the the class of academic student employees? Well, you know, I don't really see it my role um, to give advice. I, you know, I've gone and, you know, stood with them in solidarity. And I certainly am very 
inspired by the Santa Cruz strikers. I mean, to go on strike uh, as a wildcat is very risky and extraordinarily brave. And it's a very high stakes thing that if you win, it makes a huge difference for the whole rest of labor. And if you lose, it can be very devastating and discouraging to people. I mean, right now we're sort of on a teeter-totter. If the if the UAW graduate student represented workers were to win this fight and get the Santa Cruz workers who've been fired. That's right. Quite a few have. 80 or 100, depends on the reports you read. Okay. But they, if those people were to be reinstated, which I certainly favor, that would be such a huge victory across the state and even across the country. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Keith Danner, a lecturer in composition at UCI and a labor activist. And he's talking today about the organizing throughout the UC system around the academic student employees' cost of living adjustments. So talking to the how, how risky and uh, heady the wildcat strike sort of tactic is, is the where is the closest manual laying around? Was it maybe the some of the teacher strikes that were taking place around the country within the last year and a half? Is that the only playbook that maybe these students can be using? What what can it's they work certainly, with? It's certainly the most recent one. I mean, the West Virginia strike was a wildcat strike, and um, you know the the teacher strikes have been obviously very inspiring to lots of uh, labor organizers around the country. Uh, sort of even when we have this very hostile president in office, there are still things that can You're be You're talking won. about the White House now. Yeah. So we have a University of California no, office I was of the president. about so, President Trump, yeah. Okay. So it's, as you said, it's risky. So that there may be a few tailwinds offered from the success of the, the national movement around the, the strike, the wildcat strikes of, of professional teachers, primary and secondary education. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been inspired by the K through 12 teaching strikes. Not all of them were wildcat strikes. Some of them were, you know, legal um, strikes. But I think it's always the case that workers are going to have to risk things, especially in the the context that we find ourselves in now. So, Keith Danner, do you have what are you making of how the solidarity coming from other college campuses around that are outside of the UC system. Are there some similar issues with the cost of living? Are there housing increases, something similar, comparable to what those cost of living increases are here in California with such highly valued real estate? Because all of the, every UC system, every UC campus maybe with the exception of UC Merced, I don't know about UC Riverside, they're all in very boosted out real estate markets, including UC Irvine. For sure. I mean, you know, I I think I don't know about what it's like in other campuses around the country. I mean, certainly we do know that housing affordability is an issue that, you know, many, many people face, not just graduate students, and it is particularly acute in California. I personally, I did my PhD at UC Riverside, and I was there before graduate students were actually acknowledged to be workers. I mean, the University of California initially said that we were not workers. 
that we were interns or we were trainees or apprentices or something like that. And they tried to stop us from organizing at all. Um, and we were successful in organizing, uh, you know, in the 80s or early 90s. And I was very lucky actually to be at UC Riverside because the housing market in Riverside was, you know, the, the stipends that we got were set so that somebody in Berkeley could barely survive. And I was in Riverside and I was all right. So system-wide, it was the same. It was like a, a wage constant throughout the system, regardless what your your living expenses were. That's right. Well, this brings the question of the effect of the participation in the Wildcat strike. When those both there, there's different, there's a sliding scale of impact on those individuals. Many are going to be losing some of the benefits. Not, we're not talking about just payment, but there's some other talk, if you can, about what the students that have been removed from their employee, it's it's now affecting their academic plan to finish their graduate work here in the UC system. Yeah, I mean, it's They're taking a big hit. They are. I mean, on the one hand, they are taking a big hit in terms of their chosen career, in terms of uh, the PhDs that they're, and the research that they want to study. But then there's also other grave things given the state of the United States right now, which is that, you know, they lose health care. They lose the ability to pay their rent. They, in some cases, if they are students who have visas and are international students, they're immediately put at risk of deportation. So, I mean, it's very serious what the University of California has done to take this extreme measure of firing people. And for those that were out of state, they were forgiven the kind of the out of state extra tuition fees. And so those, they become effectively out of state students once again, so they have a greater burden of fees? That I don't know. That's entirely possible. Okay. So it's, this is a huge responsibility they've taken on politically. So I guess when you were talking about your labor organizing at UC Riverside. So that let's talk about that formative experience and what maybe there's risks that they're taking now. What what do you think they're they're taking away from this experience at this point? They they're doing things they've never done before in terms of labor organizing and political organizing in general. You know, it's incredible when when working people sort of stop working and go on strike, they have to figure out all kinds of things. Okay, talk about that. And you. it seems to me that it's the kind, exactly the kinds of things that you need to figure out if you want to build an entirely different kind of society. So, for example, in Santa Cruz, they had to set up a GoFundMe. And they've raised, on the one hand, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which seems like a lot of money, but then you're trying to figure out, okay, but we have hundreds of people who we have to feed. We have hundreds of people who we have to figure out how they're going to get childcare. So you're really, to me, I always think of a strike as like a, a little window into the possibility of a cooperative society. Are you seeing that here? I haven't been in Santa Cruz where things are no, but hottest, here, but oh, yeah. I mean, you know, here, the, the UCI graduate students, to my knowledge, have not yet taken a strike vote. I don't know if they have enough support to do that. I might be, I don't, we'll see. But certainly, you know, even if you're just organizing a rally or a demonstration or trying to figure out how to get the support of people who are faculty or lecturers, 
you have to do things where you have to reach out to people, you have to figure out how to uh, organize across differences, and it's, I think it's only good. If it can hang on. But the, the problem with the GoFundMe, that even the total amount that's collected, there's always a, a fraction of that that doesn't, that's taken in terms of servicing that account. So it's the, those amounts really are, it's overrepresenting how much value there really is in what's being collected. So th- are there other ways, too, that, that they can collect support financially from the community? I think that's the one that people find easiest, you know, I mean, there, there could be sort of, yeah, it's, it's the, because it's the kind of thing where what you want is, um, for it to be a kind of viral phenomenon where people from across the country can say, I'm going to give 50 bucks, I'm going to give $5, whatever I can afford to do. And then that money can be used to feed people. So is that the GoFundMe account, is that specific to the UC Santa Cruz campus right now because they're the ones that are the furthest along in the, the strike activity? Yeah, activity? I've been sort of wondering about that myself. I looked around. I didn't see any other GoFundMe. So, for example, UC Santa Barbara is currently on strike. UC Davis is currently on strike. And I haven't seen separate GoFundMe accounts for those two campuses, but certainly that's something that they'll have to figure out together because Santa Cruz is going to have because they've paid the highest cost, they will also elicit the most sort of solidarity from across the country. And then it remains to be seen, you know, how do you sort of distribute that money? What's fair for the workers? Obviously, the workers who've been fired are in most need. But the ones who are on strike uh, will, you know, they'll start to lose paychecks. So some have lost their paychecks as of March 1st, whether or not they were fired. I think others, if they went on strike in March, they'll still be paid through March, but then they won't be paid on April 1st, things like that. Well, I was privy to the National University of California Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. They had a forum in Washington, D.C. two Thursdays ago, and uh, there they were. There were activists from UC Santa Cruz with their posters held up in front of the podium where Janet Napolitano, Howard Gilman, Michelle Deutschman is the center director. And they there they were to to make their case because and that objectively speaking it seemed as though it was a a necessary contribution in the pro uh, the process underway, a necessary part a participatory act at a forum in which student protest was a part of the name. Would you respond to what that's that kind of mobilizing, what that means to you? The graduate students are endlessly inspiring. You know, they are figuring out different kinds of ways to raise consciousness about what they're up against. And certainly this kind of thing where you disrupt a conference or participate in a conference that is, as you say, about student protest itself, and to prevent the University of California from, on the one hand, putting out this public face of, you know, we're all about caring about student speech, we're all about caring about working class and minority students, and then, at the same time, how do those students end up getting treated? I think the, the, student, the graduate students have been really creative and uh, inspiring, as I say. 
So it wasn't easy to see from the live stream of that. This, as I said, it took place in Washington, D.C. We couldn't tell when the live streaming was put on pause. There was no uh, there was no camera on what was done when the silent protesters with their placards, where they then did not appear anymore, uh, but they, sometimes they could be heard and they were engaged. But so the, the whole picture is not available to us to see that. So that was quite interesting, to say the least. Well, in closing, Keith, is there anything else you'd like to bring to our attention you think isn't getting its due in the coverage of this cost of living adjustment strike with the academic student employees? Well, I mean, I will say, I just want to emphasize that, you know, I'm not a spokesperson for them. I'm a lecturer. You've you been know, clear. Um, but I, I, I will want to say that, you know, my own union is currently in negotiation for a contract. And our, we have three issues that we're focused on. Wages, job security, and unpaid labor. And one thing I want to say about unpaid labor is that, you know, the university is very strenuously pushing for us to prepare for online classes with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And obviously, we care about public health, we care about our students' education, and we care about our own work lives, and we're not willing to do a bunch of extra unpaid labor when we're in contract negotiations in which we're trying to get paid for labor that we already do, like, you know, mentoring students and writing letters of recommendation and things like that. We want to be very careful to sort of say, look, this is a crisis and there needs to be extra resources devoted to this crisis so that we can serve our students. I don't want to say fair enough, because every time I hear fair enough, it's like saying, I disagree, but I'll let you say that. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with at all that the unpaid labor showing up in accommodating the public health crisis management with the COVID-19, with the online. So I can imagine that there's a good deal more time and energy put into moving your curriculum to an online platform, which is totally different from what lecturers might be doing in the, the high quality delivery of the seminar and other lecture experiences. So this this sounds like a big added item in a portfolio that you're contributing as lecturers in the UC system. It's different for each class. You know, some classes, I'm sure it's not difficult. Maybe they have sort of units that are already online. But for some people, it's actually quite difficult. And indeed, it's a little worrisome. I think that we would be concerned that student evaluations, if they were, that that would be very, very concerning to us if people's merit increases or if their appointment as continuing lecturers depended on course evaluations in a quarter in which things were disrupted. And, you know, we are going to do everything we can to maintain educational quality, but we also have to face the reality there are certain classes that just don't work online. It's just not really workable. So I, I think that's a really important part for listeners to appreciate what that adjustment is all about, too. So I thank you. Thank you for joining me in studio today, Keith. Uh, thank you very much for having me here, Claudia. My guest was Keith Danner, lecturer in composition at UC Irvine and a labor activist, talking today about organizing throughout the UC systems around the academic student employees' cost of living adjustments.
We'll be right back after a station break with Claire Trevor School of the Arts, UCI Director Jane Page, and Claire Trevor School of the Arts actors, Arielle Kvashny and Crystal Kim. It's quite a play. You don't want to miss their discussion here. More importantly, you don't want to miss out on their play. Don't go away. So, welcome back to the show. My next guests are UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts, director Jane Page, and actors Ariella Kvashny and Crystal Kim, all of whom are involved in a wonderful production of Lisa Loomer's play, Living Out, a comic drama. Let's start with Jane Page. In the U.S., Jane has directed Shakespeare and staged productions for Colorado, Utah, Kentucky, St. Louis, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And her work has been across the country at theaters including Cleveland Playhouse, the Virginia Stage Company, the Merrimack Repertory Theater, Alabama Shakespeare Festival, the Cleveland Playhouse, the Studio Arena Theater, and the Giva Theater. In addition to her professional work, Jane's taught and staged productions at universities at LSU, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, Webster College in St. Louis and Indiana University, her alma mater, and the University of Colorado Boulder. Jane's also gone big into many innovative community projects. In Colorado, she's applied theater techniques in education and remains involved in community projects here with UCI's Medical School, the Dean of Undergraduate Education and outreach projects for Irvine Public School Foundation. For her work at UCI, she's been honored, we have a drum roll here somewhere, with the UCI Engage Faculty Great Partner Award for her community engagement and the campus-wide Professor of the Year. An endowed scholarship was established in her honor at the Graduate School of International Studies at the University of Denver, and she was named Theater Educator of the Year by the Alliance for Colorado Theater. And we have in studio, too, the two actors in Living Out, Ariella Kvashny is in the lead role, Ana Hernandez. Ariella performed in Parliament Square. That Jane directed last year, and maybe some of you remember that interview with the playwright. And other roles, her other roles include those in Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra, The Pillow Man, Azul, Plumas Negras, Brooklyn the Musical, Chicago, Rocky Horror, Legally Blonde, A Summer in Smoke, and Superficial Alice. And Alto Mezzo, Ariel has performed national anthems on both sides of the American-Canadian border, as well as some benefit gigs. She won both the National Youth Arts and Ben Vereen Awards. She's completing next year, that's spring of 2021, her BFA here at UCI. And Crystal Kim, the other one, actress in studio joining us, is playing the role of Nancy Rubin in Living Out. Other productions she's performed in include Macbeth, Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Merchant of Venice, The Bear, Refugee Hotel, Parliament Square, The Importance of Being Earnest, Midnight Summer's Dream, The Winter's Tale, How to Fight Loneliness, Three Sisters, Antigonic, she was Antigone, The Road Weeps, The Well Runs Dry, Julius Caesar as Cassius, The Country Wife, Hype Hero, and Welcome to Wonderland. And she's appeared in film in lead and supporting roles. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Theater Arts at Brown University and will be completing her MFA this spring right here at UCI. She, too, is a vocal artist and an instrumentalist and a dancer. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ariella Kvashny and Crystal Kim, and welcome back, Jane Page. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. And this is Crystal. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Well, zero spoiler alerts. We're just here to make sure that ticket sales do become brisk. Congratulations, all three of you. What a phenomenal play. Let's first have Jane tell us how you landed on this one as you've been getting increasingly involved in immigration advocacy around Southern California. Well, thank you for having us. We're really excited about Living Out. It's a play that I saw oh, probably 15 years ago uh, in Colorado. And it premiered. It was a world premiere at, at uh, Mark South, Tabor. At, uh, at Tabor, I, I believe think, so. If I, when yeah. I looked that up, yeah. yeah. And I saw it, and, and when I saw it, I thought, I have to direct this play. So it went in my bucket list. And uh, luckily, this year was the year. We're doing a, a whole year on Jubilee with all women writers of the plays. And uh, I thought it was really important that we tell stories about mothers. And so this is how we sort of came to this wonderful script. Oh, the mothers. Yeah, Who gets to raise <laughs> whose children? It's just that it's a huge, huge tension throughout. And it's amazing what the characters say about that. So it's fair um, to say that the playwright, she presents sliding scales of awareness of each of the characters. No? Correct. And I think that the notion is that they're mothers and it's also it's the script has six women in it and three of them are Latinx women who are caregivers or nannies for a privileged group of women. And it's all set in L.A. and it's the understanding of what they have in common and also what they definitely do not have in common. And it's a fine line in this kind of material you you like can fall over the line of being a caricature and you jane you're the director's director you avoid and the actors avoid that kind of character caricatured sort of problem with different ethnicities being represented different ethnicities interacting with each other in a play how do you steer away how do you work as a director jane with the actors to sort of like okay that that you know, roll that back a little bit. Think differently about you know what I, you're, how you're presenting yourself. That's a really interesting question, and I think primarily it's every character has to be understandable, and there there are no really evil people in the, in this play. There are people with lack of information, and I think they all have lacks in their information. But it's keeping it real, trying to really keep it real that we know people like these people. So, there for me. Because this play was set in the late 1990s. Correct. And for anybody who's keeping up a little bit in the last three years of immigration policy, that there's for, that for me, there was this kind of reconciling of, well, that, that was, those were options available in the late 1990s. Those have all dried up. So it, that's, that was a tricky thing to bring out in your play, too. Well, I think the notion of how immigration policy is very slippery and it was slippery in the 1990s as it is now, or at least it feels that way to me at this point. And I think, you know, doing the research about uh, the El Salvadoran War and, and what happened to those people that fled. And a, there was a huge migration of people out of that country during right that to war. Here. Many, yeah. yes. All right. Well, let's hear from our actors. Talk a bit, you two, about how you prepared for your roles Ariella as Anne Hernandez and Crystal as Nancy Robin. 
So I did a lot of YouTube videos and we had a lot of um, research done by our wonderful dramaturg. But mainly since I'm not a mother and I don't come from El Salvador, I just really wanted to see what it was like. So I looked up a lot of real life news and that kind of stuff to see real life mothers in these situations. And real life people? Yes, real life people actually going through this and being displaced by the war and having these immigration um, struggles with their children as well. Because she doesn't, well, let's see, did I say no zero, uh, zero spoilers? Well, she doesn't have papers. She doesn't have papers. She does not, yes. So that, again, about choices. Uh, so, Crystal, let's talk about your preparation because you had, yes. yeah, it looks like, you know, you don't present to me as a Jewish woman. No, but that's who you are, is Nancy Robin. Yeah, so that was obviously a thing to think about. And I had just played Jessica in The Merchant of Venice over the summer at New Swan. And, I mean, the whole conversation of casting, we can get it to later. But for this role, I had to build in, for me, how did a person who looks like me get into the situation? And so I talked to Jane a bit about how her backstory might work out. And for me, I had to build in well, it actually worked out perfectly with the age um, and time oh, yeah, that she yeah. was like a Korean War adoptee. I was like, okay, because there was a huge surge of Korean War adoptions at the age that I would be at at that time. And I was like, okay, maybe I was a Korean War adoptee and I was um, brought into a Jewish family that was very wealthy in Washington because that's, she says, I'm gonna go home to Washington and that I was raised Jewish culturally. Um, and so it was interesting playing with that dynamic of me being raised in a Jewish family and then being quite privileged at that time to live in Santa Monica and be an entertainment attorney and to have a nanny. Um, so it was very interesting to try to uh, put myself in her situation because it's very different from obviously who I am as Crystal. So. And as part of the preparation, there was speech coaching or dialect coaching. How yeah. how did you work through that, Ariella? My background is I am Mexican, and so I had a very um, good understanding of what a Mexican accent would be, but the accent from El Salvador is very very different. Um, so our accent coach did a lot of research for us and she was wonderful. But it was, again, a lot of watching YouTube videos of people who were in this situation and who were talking about these specific issues in general. So yeah, largely my role was based on real people going through this. And I think through that we could hear the accent both in Spanish and in English and how it would sound with distress and how it would sound, you know, with the pressure of the news. And it just cleared up a lot for me. And your husband's Mexican. My National. husband is also from El Salvador. Oh, I've, okay. Um, but the actor who right. plays him is also Mexican. So oh, we so both he, come from okay. the same background. Yeah. It was very interesting putting that into the role as well. So for you, Crystal, you you, you just had to know enough Spanish, right, to, to know when, or actually, the, no, the Spanish is only spoken amongst the Latinas and Latin American spouses, so. Yeah, and so, my husband gets to speak a little Oh, yeah, bit. he does. <laughs> yes, embarrassing. But he wasn't, he like, back to the earlier point, he, he was so on it without actually being a caricature. He. He's a very sympathetic character. So, yeah. and that maybe you riffed off of that. 
that if he wasn't a character, it made you, it it raised your game. You two could raise each other's game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Hunter is a very empathetic and sympathetic person, naturally. And so I think you really brought that to the role. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are UCI, Claire Trevor School of the Arts Director, Jane Page, and actors Ariel Fashni and Crystal Kim. They're involved in Lisa Loomer's comic drama, Living Out, and the performances, write this down in your calendars, continue through March 15th. That's starting, the, the next performance will be tomorrow, if you're listening to this live. It's at the Robert Cohen Theater on campus, where you'll all get lots of ways to get the, your tickets if you don't have them already. So I really want to get into this this interplay between Ariel's and Crystal's character. The power dynamic between you is really interesting whether you're withholding to make to appear some way or uh, uh, showing uh, concern, is it authentic concern? Talk about the power dynamic because there is in real life the the nanny doesn't have nearly the amount of power that the employer does hiring the nanny. But how it was, a, I think, a little more fluid situation. So who wants to take that first? Here's yeah. Crystal. Um, it's really interesting because when I first read the play. I would situate my personal experiences more with um, the Latinx women because I didn't grow up with a nanny and um, I really sympathize with their side of the of the coin. But Nancy is clearly on the other side of the fence. And I had to kind of shut off this valve of how Crystal thinks about the situation and genuinely approach it from how would Nancy see this situation? And the power dynamic is interesting. We had um, Scott Stone, our dramaturg, was wonderful. And he researched, um, there's been a lot of studies done on the nanny-employer dynamic and how a lot of, I think I'm quoting this correctly, a lot of nannies feel like their employers do take advantage of them. And I think the most poignant line in the play of our relationship mm -hmm. is when I, after in act two scene five when i ask her if she can work late and she's like no i have a family thing you can't do this again and then i'm like okay well can you do a, a favor for me as a friend and it's like this emotional manipulation that i think a lot of nannies and employers go through and nancy plays right into it and i do genuinely think that nancy thinks of her as a friend by the end of the show because of how invested she is in santi's getting better but that's I, the sun. Yeah. Uh, it turns out to be here and not over out, out fuera. Yeah. So. so, yeah, but also at the end of the play, I think she acknowledges how different they are and how she was like, did I even know her? Could I consider her a friend if we're so different? So it's very interesting. So, Arietta? There was a lot of formalities that came into playing this role. Um, I think when you know, you're a nanny in someone else's household, there's a lot of awkwardness at the beginning that eventually turned into being comfortable in their home. But I think part of what made the power dynamic so interesting is that, you know, this woman is raising this other woman's kid, essentially. And um, she misses out on raising her own, which I think is the most heartbreaking part of the play. But a lot of what I was discovering is how this woman from El Salvador would respond to all the underlying racism that is within this community of privileged um, American people. And a lot of it was just kind of covering what 
you know, this woman was actually feeling when it was thrown at her, which I think speaks a lot to how people react in, you know, in real life to these situations. I mean, I don't know that many people that would call out, you know, a little joke that they know isn't malicious, but underlying there's a lot of racism and, you know, kind of feelings towards what is actually being said. So it was a lot of navigating how I would actually react and how if I would show my, you know, being offended or if I would just cover it up immediately because this is, in fact, a job. And there's also, I guess, an, this embedded aspect is you have the two-hour commute each way. And that, I do, So that yeah. this par- power dynamics go, one person has to work a lot harder to get together than the other one. So, all right, I'm going to just throw out kudos. Whose idea was it to put on Anna's husband the Maradona soccer jersey? That was hilarious. Well, we we talked about it because it's a character that's mentioned in the play. He says he's got a new another Maradona. The kid will be there. Their oh, son that's is right. Playing that's so right. Well. There's so, a lot coming at us. I can't remember yeah, I know. all the details. Yeah, of course. But not. I remember that jersey. I was like, oh, right. that is hilarious. Okay. Right, right. And because he mentions him, I'm, I was assuming they probably had that shirt. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, then back to this dynamic then. Let's talk about if, if you were almost getting at it, Crystal, about being friends with your nanny, your character. So does that say something and then that her that Nancy's motivations are coming from altruism? Because she's an attorney. She knows how much legal trouble she could be in for employing an undocumented nanny. So I don't know if she's vacillating between altruism and a whole pragmatic cover her butt. Yeah. The question of altruism is interesting because, well, we were talking about it with, at the talk back on Sunday, somebody in the audience was like, I did not like your character to um, one of our actors, Veronica, who played Wallace. The toughest. The toughest. um, The least woke, as it were. Yeah. And so she handled the question beautifully, and she said... You know, you have to kind of shut off the judgment of your character for a second so you can understand why they're saying something or why they're doing something. And so for Nancy, I think she has the best of intentions. And I think um, but she does at the she is a hypocrite um, because she is explicitly in the fight with Richard, she says, um, because he omits um, a key detail about his daughter and about her daughter crawling while she was away. And he's like, I'm sorry I omitted it. And I'm like, well, an om- omission is a lie. But the entire play, Nancy omits things. She omits that she's smoking. She omits that her nanny's undocumented. And so she is a hypocrite. But I think it comes back to how the uh, we want to see the best in us. And all of us are trying to do our best. But we are naturally hypocrites. And we naturally have contradictions within ourselves. But we're doing our best because, I mean, she's just trying to take care of Jenna and also have a career and also make her husband happy and la-da-da-da-da. So, actually, I want to know, how. let's see, how many, at, we're here on Tuesday, so you've had a total of one or two per, two performances. Two performances. So I, I thought the, the matinee, the audience was a little stingy on their reaction to what's going on in the play. So I, I hope you're going to get a little more a little more reaction from people. You, you deserved it. You worked for it. It was merited. But I'm hoping, no, I'm hoping that there's, I'd like for 
audiences to know they have every opportunity to give back to the production in their reactions. So how are you receiving your reception so far? How, how much are you relying on? Or are you sort of like, oh, well, this this is a little cold group here. It's the an older um, group that, on well, Sunday matinee. I, I guess I would take issue with what... That's with, fine. And I think it's... Um, the play goes from a very open sort of light a light sensibility. There's a lot of humor in the play. And then, you know, the, the world changes. And it's a very uh, touching ending. And for some people, distressing ending. And I think from where I was, there were a lot of people trying to collect themselves at the end of the play. So I didn't feel at all that it was a sting- stingy. My feeling is the good audience is the go- audience that shows up and shares uh, that's their ter- time. That's terrible. But I, sometimes I, uh, I notice that when the audience really gives back, and I know that that was an essential win. But I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that more audiences increasingly are going to, they're going to, let you know how much they enjoyed that punchline or a gasp or something. It wasn't One thing I'd like to put in yes. is that we have added some seats to the theater. So even if you're online and it says it's sold out, it's very likely if you show up that we will be able to, to seat you. And Jane gets at my standard refrain. Always show up at every performance, not just Claire Trevor School of the Arts performance, but all performances, there's always room at the inn. You've got to risk it because there's, there's going to be somebody who can't show up or <clears throat> sometimes blocks of seats were never actually distributed. So everybody that's the Robert Cohen Theater and there's different matinee and evening performances. They're all sort of moving around between 7.30 and 8 and 2, that kind of thing. So it's there. Again, it's living out Lisa Loomer's comic drama at the Robert Cohen Theater. Well, we need to excuse some actors who need to go to class so I can let them go. If I'm going to thank Ariella Kvashny and Crystal Kim who are performing in Lisa Loomer's Living so Out. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's we're going to keep... Yeah, thanks. And we'll keep Jane here to give us some of the details about when are there going to be any more talkbacks and when we're, uh, you know, any any other particulars about how to follow this, how to get ready, if we need to get ready for this play, and, uh, you know, box office details. Jane. Great. I really appreciate the fact that you uh, saw the show before we started the interview, because I think your, your questions are really uh, well-founded and, um, and accurate. So we hope that everybody will show up, and we start on tomorrow, Wednesday, and play through Sunday. <sighs> And the box office number, 949-824-2787, to, get, to dial it in, or there's the arts, ticks, A-R-T-S-T-I-X, at uci.edu. And uh, as always, Jane's production will graciously accept your contributions to the UCI's Basic Needs Hub's food bank in the form of either non-perishable goods that you can bring to the theater you can send a financial contribution to the give.uci.edu forward slash food pantry. So, so Jane, anything else you want to pitch to us about the play? Well, I just, I think the other thing that's really interesting is that the designers are all students and many of them are first year um, student design students at UCI. We have one young woman who did the set who just graduated undergraduate school. So it's her first show. And then we have lighting designer, projection designer, sound designer, costume designer, and a whole team of stage managers. They're all students. They have all worked really, really hard. One of the other things that's, I think, unusual about this production is that the set 
comes and goes. There's 18 different scene changes in the course of the play. And there's a, there's a whole village of people. There's 11 people on the deck uh, moving pieces of furniture and things to make the play seamless. And it was inspired. So seamless. It really was inspired by the notion of freeways in L.A. because they're across town and there's wonderful projections of highway signs. So I think it's a really different way to see a play. And you're really close, which is great. It's a wonderful, a wonderful venue. Do you like, I mean, when you get that, that was that your choice? Yes. The Robert Cohen? Okay. <laughs> well, it's a great space to see theater in, I think. And I'm really grateful to have this slot. Well, Jane, I want to thank you for taking time out because you're, you're everywhere all over the place to make all of these projects move forward. And you give like nobody else at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts direction. So thank you very much for being on. Good luck with filling every single seat. I'm, I'll do my part to try to fan out that Thank way. you so much, Claudia. Thank you. Well, that's my wrap. Uh, next week, I'm going to have on Michelle Chung. She's a pediatric epidemiologist at the Orange County Health Agency about covid 19. Then Rick Conkey, the impresario at Laguna Beach Cultural Arts Center in what was a BC space, has some special events to present for our consideration right around the corner. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.